Hebrews chapter 2. If you'd look there, I'm going to read for us from verse 9 through verse 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Last week we saw that Jesus is the representative man, even now ruling over creation. The old promise, we find it in Psalm 8, for example, that God would put everything under humanity's feet and subject everything to humanity's rule, Think of the enormity of that promise. It's almost impossible to conceive. Everything subjected to man has come true through the representative man, Jesus Christ, and will one day come true for mankind. But we do not yet see everything subject to man. Disease, disaster, accident, The elements are stubbornly insubordinate. They are in rebellion. And so God has ordained it. As long as mankind rebels against God, creation will rebel against man. If you rebel against God, life will in the end rebel against you. In the hound of heaven, the poet Francis Thompson has God say, All things betray thee who betrayest me. Naught shelters thee who shelterest not me. Naught contents thee who contentest not me. It's true. As long as man rebels against God, we will not see, verse 8, everything subject to him. But we do, verse 9, See Jesus. And we must see Jesus. Our author will later tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Like St. Peter walking on the water, we can do the impossible when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. But when we take our eyes off our king and look instead at disease and disaster and accident and the elements, as Peter took his eyes off Jesus and looked for a while at the unruly waves, will sink like the proverbial stone. We see Jesus, verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In this verse, we're told both the reason he was made lower than the angels and the reason he's been crowned with glory and honor. We'll take the second one first. He was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered. Specifically because he willingly suffered death. He, the representative man, submitted so completely to God that the threat of death itself couldn't turn him aside, even death on a cross. He rendered to God the obedience that Adam failed to give. And so God exalted him to the highest place and crowned him with glory and honor. This verse also tells us why he was made a little lower than the angels, so that he could do what no angel could ever do, die. So that he could taste death for every person, or as the Greek has it, on behalf of all. Now, when you hear that Jesus tasted death, you might get the wrong idea. You might think that he tasted it, decided he didn't like it, like the vinegar offered him on the cross, and refused to swallow it. That idea, by the way, is not unlike what Islam teaches about Jesus. But that's not at all what our author means. Jesus didn't taste death like a wine taster at a California vineyard, swilling it around and then spitting it out. He drank it down. In fact, the word that's translated as tasted often simply means ate. Jesus was a death eater, the true one. Throughout the Bible, we read of people being swallowed up. That is killed. We read of the earth opening its mouth and swallowing up people and of enemies boasting, we swallowed them up. The psalmist speaks of the grave swallowing people up. Humanity has a problem. It's the problem of the six-foot hole. Death swallows us up. But Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels so that he could eat death for every person. Now, the Bible mentions other reasons Jesus came, that men might have life, that the devil's work might be destroyed, that the law might be fulfilled. But those reasons are all bound together with this one. He was made a little lower than the angels so that he would be able to die and so taste death for everyone. Death has swallowed up Adam and all his descendants ever since Adam's sin. Now a second Adam has turned the tables on death. He swallowed it up. And in him, the scripture is fulfilled. He will swallow up death forever. Now the song has come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And we can with the prophet taunt, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now look at verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In bringing many sons to glory. If someone asks you to what end, according to Christianity, is humanity being led, tell them humanity is being led to glory. This is a testimony of Scripture. God prepared man in advance for glory. Through Christ, he destined us for glory before time began. 
and we are being transformed into his likeness, the one who rules all things, with ever-increasing glory. And though we don't know what all that means, it's beyond what we've seen or heard or even imagined, it will mean, verse 9 or verse 8, that everything will be brought into subjection to man. Now notice that Jesus is called the author of salvation. The word that's translated as author in the New International Version has numerous related meanings, which are reflected in the different ways English translations render it. It appears four times in the Bible, but has been variously translated as captain, author, pioneer, guide, prince, just to name a few. The Greek term is so rich in meaning, it's impossible for a single word to cover it. In classical literature, the term was used of the hero who founded a city. He was the founder, the originator, the pioneer. But he was also a warrior and leader. And so by extension, the word came to be used of a military captain or a commander. Our author sees Jesus as all these things. He's the pioneer who blazes the trail and leads God's people into salvation and glory. Jesus is the trailblazer. He's opened a way through death itself and leads his people into the presence of God. And the one who blazed the trail is now our guide. For this, God says the psalmist at the end of 48, is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Notice that making men holy in verse 11 is parallel to bringing people to glory in verse 10. The idea that you can attain glory for eternity without attaining at least some degree of holiness in this life is one that would never have occurred to the author of Hebrews. In fact, he later says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Our author says that Jesus and we belong to the same family. Now, he explains that further as he goes on. But at this point, notice the end of verse 10. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Did you ever have a weird little brother or sister that embarrassed you? Or were you, like me, the weird little brother or sister who did the embarrassing you remember, Mom, do I have to take him with me? None of the other kids are bringing their stupid little brothers. But Jesus, our elder brother, never says that. He loves his little brothers and sisters and will gladly take them with him wherever he goes. He does not, like some older brothers, pretend that we belong to some other family. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. John and Lori Foote took a teenage girl from their youth group. They were youth group leaders at the time. They took a youth group girl named Amanda into their home. Amanda was being terribly abused by her parents. At the time, she was 16, same age as one of the Foote's two sons. Amanda's birth parents gave up any right to legal custody, and the courts officially placed her, the Child Protective Service officially placed her with the Foots. 
Six years later, after consulting with their two sons, John and Lori legally adopted Amanda. She was 22 years old at the time when they adopted her. And her name was legally changed to Amanda Foote. She got a new birth certificate. She became one of John and Lori's three legal heirs and now had two brothers. The Foots had long felt like Amanda was their daughter, but when asked if anything changed at Amanda's adoption, John said, absolutely. When it was official, there was this huge change in Lori and me, sort of like when you see a newborn, your newborn for the first time. And for Amanda, there was a change in her too. Now she knew she belonged. She knew we were her parents. See, because of our elder brother, We are part of God's family. He's given us a new name, his, a new standing as heirs, and a new family as brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our father. But God did something that John and Lori could never do for Amanda. He gave us his Holy Spirit. It's kind of like God gives us his DNA, implants in us his heart, his mind, his passions, his holiness. He is, verse 11, making us holy. Now look down to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Fear of death. It's a primal fear. It was downloaded into human consciousness the moment Adam turned from God. And it has been with us ever since. It's a part of all of our fears. They all flow from this one. Woody Allen says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. We laugh when we hear him say that. But we understand the feeling. But Woody Allen will die. And so will we. Death is on everyone's itinerary. I don't know how long it will take for you. A few days. Or 80 years. But you'll get there. Unless Jesus returns first. We can speak calmly about it in the abstract. We wax philosophic about death as long as it seems like it's far off. But the moment death sends its calling card, our repose goes out the window. That's what happened to Paul Azinger, the professional golfer. He was age 33 and diagnosed with cancer. He had, at that time, 10 tournament victories and had just won a PGA championship. He later wrote about that. He said, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me even harder. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. He says, everything I'd accomplished in golf became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. He says it was then he remembered something that Larry Moody, who teaches a Bible study on the tour, told him. Singer, he said, we're not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying, trying to get to the land of the living. 
Azinger said, I've made a lot of money. I've won a lot of tournaments. But that happiness is only temporary. The only way you'll ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and, and that I don't have problems, but I feel like I found the answer to the six-foot hole. The answer to the six-foot hole. Paul Azinger found it. Jesus Christ provides it. He shared in our humanity. He took on blood and flesh so that he could eat death for us, swallow it whole. The people described in verse 11 as those who are being made holy are the people in verse 15 who are freed from their fear of death. An increase in holiness inevitably brings a decrease in the fear of death. You've read about Bishop Desmond Tutu. He's one of those guys who doesn't fear death. When he was under investigation by the ELOF Commission, the South African government's ELOF Commission, he said, there's nothing the government can do to me that will stop me from being involved in what I believe God wants me to do. I do not do it because I like doing it. I do it because I'm under what I believe to be the influence of God's hand. I can't help it. And then he asked, but what is it that they can ultimately do? The most awful thing that they can do is kill me. And death is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. He found the answer to the six-foot hole. And notice that he did so as he was doing what God called him to do. That's when the fear of death diminished. So it was for St. Paul, who, knowing he was compelled by the Holy Spirit, acknowledged that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. People like Paul, who are busy with the task the Lord gave them, running the race set before them, aren't ruled by the fear of death. It's those who don't enter the race, but watch from the sidelines that worry about death. The motto of Wheaton College, where one of my sons got his master's degree, is for Christ and his kingdom. For Christ and his kingdom. Ten years ago, a Wheaton alumnus, Todd Beamer, was flying from Newark to San Francisco on United Flight 93. You recognize that number, don't you? 90 minutes into the flight, they were somewhere around Cleveland. Hijackers took over the plane, and Beamer picked up the GTE airphone. And he talked with a supervisor named Lisa Jefferson. He told her what was going on on board, and she told him what had happened at the World Trade Center. He told her that he and a few others were determined to do whatever was necessary to disrupt the terrorist plan. He then asked Lisa to call his wife and report their conversation to her and tell her how much he loved her. Then this Sunday school teacher, Wheaton graduate, asked her to pray the Lord's Prayer with him. And when they were done, she heard him say, Are you ready, guys? Let's roll. 
Minutes later, Flight 93 crashed to the ground in a Pennsylvania field rather than into the White House or some other densely populated area. That's because Todd Beamer and a few others found the answer to the six-foot hole. Jesus is the answer to the six-foot hole. Jesus, the trailblazer and pioneer, our guide, who knows the way through the shadow of death, has destroyed, verse 14, the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now, when you read those words, you may think, how can anyone claim the devil has been destroyed? Just look around you. Well, let me point out two things here. First, the feat was accomplished through death. Jesus conquered death by dying. His death brought us victory and the devil defeat. And secondly, notice the word rendered destroyed in the NIV. It's a fairly common word in the Greek New Testament. It appears over and over again. It's not always translated that way. Sometimes it's translated as set aside, nullify, abolish, done away with, made worthless, disappears. Our author is not suggesting by his use of this word that the devil is no longer in existence but that he's been set aside or put out of business, which is one of the ways that word was used in secular Greek. Now let me explain this with a story. In an article in Christianity Today, Carolyn Ahrens wrote about a missionary couple. Missionaries would come every once in a while to their church and speak on a Sunday morning. She remembers one couple coming to church when she was a girl. She doesn't remember much of what they said, except for the story they told about the snake. One day she said, the missionaries told this story. One day, an enormous snake, much longer than a man, slithered its way through their front door and into their kitchen. Terrified, they ran outside looking for some local who would know what to do. So one of their neighbors grabbed a machete and he ran into the house and he decapitated, decapitated the snake with just a, one clean blow. He came back out of the house and assured them that the snake had been defeated, but he told them it was going to take a while for the snake to realize it was dead. Apparently, a snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving, even after decapitation. So for the next several hours, the missionaries had to wait outside while the snake thrashed about, smashing their furniture, flailing against their walls and windows, wreaking havoc, until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. From that experience, the missionaries say they saw something in a way they'd never seen it before. They told the church, Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage. But never forget that he's a goner. So Carolyn Ahrens writes... I've come to believe that story is an accurate picture of the universe. We're in the thrashing time. The temptation is to despair. We have to remember, though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. Jesus is the pioneer and guide. He knows the way through suffering because he, verse 10, suffered. He knows the way through death because he, verse 14, died. He knows the way to glory because he is now, verse 9, crowned with glory and he will guide his people safely there. 
Jesus is the serpent killer, the guide, and the answer, the answer to the six-foot hole. The question of the answer of the hour is, is Jesus your guide? And is he your answer? You might be wondering about that yourself. How can you know? The Bible's answer is, you can know when you turn resolutely to God and away from sin, from all those things that are between you and God, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to do that on your own with only the strength of your willpower to sustain you. God will grant you repentance, that change of mind that changes everything. But understand that trusting Jesus is not like trusting in a bank safe deposit box. There you place something that's valuable to you and you just forget about it until a need arises. That's how some people see salvation. But trusting Jesus isn't like that. It's more like trusting a guide to lead you through the jungle, through the valley of the shadow of death. He's going somewhere, and trusting means you follow him. You go with him. He's leading you from the land of the dying to the land of the living, so follow closely. Let's bow our heads and pray. I'm going to give you a moment to... If you don't know that that Jesus is your guide, your answer, your savior, and you're ready to know that, would you right now resolutely turn away from anything in your life that you know is wrong, is between you and God? Anything that keeps you from being his person. And turn to him Give him yourself, everything there is of you. And trust in his son, Jesus Christ, the serpent killer, our guide to the end. We thank you for hearing our prayers, O God. And we thank you for giving us your son and taking us into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.